I'm sorry, my neighbour started mowing his lawn. I'm going to have to go and close my window. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 158 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and in Moving House I appear to have affected the space-time continuum and I am now living next door to future Hannah Dunleavy. I'd like some more information. How many weed plants are they growing in the garden? (laughs) (laughs) Her garden is incredible and she wanders around it in what appears to be a nighty. Yes. And she has lots and lots of cats and has already told me five brilliant anecdotes. So yeah, she's basically older you. I am. Hannah's unlazy. <laughs> and the other day, I saw a man having a wank while riding a bicycle. The mind boggles. Were you riding the bicycle? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the obvious response is, who says men can't multitask? <laughs> Honestly, I was kind of almost impressed if it hadn't been so appalling at the same time. Whenever I see someone smoking and riding a bike, I'm like, how are you, like, how are you managing that? Because I can't cycle with, like, one hand because I go all off, balance. like, all squiffy and off balance. So imagine, imagine the skills involved in having a wank whilst riding a bike. I, imagine I the imagine graze it. involved. I don't want to imagine it When you either. come off. Yeah. Yeah, that Good is going to chafe. And I'm Jen Offord and I am mother to a one-year-old. Ah, happy birthday, Lyra. Where does the time go, Jen? Where does it go? It goes into a smear of sweet potato on the back of the sofa or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. Later on, I chat to Agnes Tano and Sam Hudson from Women for Refugee Women about how Yarlswood is a prison, not a sanctuary, the plight of refugee women in the UK and the fight to halt the building of a new detention centre in County Durham. With the Euros now underway, I chat to Scotland Women's Football Manager and BBC Sport Pundit Shelley Kerr, and in Rated or Dated, we're dancing the magic dance as we watch 1986's Labyrinth. I went with my mum yesterday to a place called Olney, which is quite posh, to take her out for lunch, because it was her birthday, with my sister. And one lad, who was about, I'd say, 18, just single-handedly walking up the high street going, Hang on, lad, hang on, lad. <laughs> while loads of middle-class people went, is it the rugby today? Is it? I didn't know it was the rugby today. I was at a one-year-old's birthday party. I didn't watch it. Souls. We have no internet in our new place, and so we watched it on, like, tethered to a phone. So it just meant we would hear loads of cheering, and then, like, ten minutes later, England scored a goal, and we were like, okay. Well, that wasn't a surprise, was it? <laughs> But first, derailment, dickery and the colour blue. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Spitting out the news like a humpback whale surprised to have a man in its mouth. That's a crazy story, right? Bless old lobster diver Michael Packford was a Jonah Mark II, but he's all right. He's just got some bruised legs. So, here Mick and I are, Monday the 14th of June, and there you are... Wednesday the 16th of June or later. And once again, we're due an announcement tonight on the unlocking down. Yeah, that's a word of the (laughs) UK. And what can I say about the almost inevitable delay to procedures prompted by fears of a third wave? Nothing that hasn't already been said, with the country's views apparently ranging from it's all a conspiracy to we should all be locked down all the time, forever. Of course, this hasn't stopped us flattening this out into two groups, realists and sheeple. (laughs) If you don't know which one you are, I'm here to help. It's either or both, depending on who's saying it. And the standard of debate continues to really impress. Why do you want to kill Grandma, Covidiot, making a comeback this week to anyone expressing any concern or disappointment that the plan to get back on track has uh, derailed? And while I'm not arguing that we should plough ahead with opening up against medical advice, I would like to remind people that we have literally no idea what is going on in other people's lives. So perhaps we should consider that before calling them a wanker on Twitter and telling them that the health of the nation should come first. Because the health of the nation is not solely measured in the number of COVID deaths. Don't believe me? Then let me bombard you with some facts. Oh, I like facts. (laughs) You won't like these ones, Peggy, I'm telling you. According to figures from University College London, for the first time ever, more children are being admitted to hospital with mental health concerns than with physical health problems. 
Research, published in the Lancet Oncology Journal, suggests that more than 3,000 lives could be lost to breast, colon, esophagus and lung cancers over the next five years due to delays in diagnosis because of COVID. NACOA, that's the National Association for Children of Alcoholics, has reported a 200% rise in calls to its helpline. A report by Public Health England has shown a 34% rise in the number of people drinking more than 50 units of alcohol a week. Meanwhile, the Action on Addiction charity, which deals with all kinds of addictions, saw an 86% rise in the number of people seeking help this January compared with last year. In fact, when you start looking, there doesn't seem to be a single social ill that hasn't become a whole lot worse. The British Medical Journal reported that in the spring lockdown, there was a 1,493% increase in cases of children presenting with abusive head trauma at Great Ormond Street's Children's Hospital. Yeah, that figure does sound huge. So, to clarify, that's a rise from one child every two months to 10 children a month. 10 children a month in one hospital. I don't know about you, but those little figures sound just as horrifying as that big figure does to me. Absolutely. The number of babies in England suffering serious injury through abuse or neglect during the COVID pandemic is up by a fifth and eight have died from their injuries. That's according to Ofsted's most recent figures. They also found that more than 300 serious incident notifications of injury and death involving children were reported by local authorities between April and October, of which almost 40% involved children under the age of one. Cases of domestic abuse reported to police rose by 10% in 2020. That's reported to police. Wow. And Refuge recorded an average of 15,541 calls and messages to its National Domestic Abuse Helpline every month between April 2020 and February 2021. That's a more than 60% rise on the previous year. Had enough yet? Yes. Sorry, I've more. No, I don't like facts anymore. You've ruined facts (laughs) for me, Hannah. The Internet Watch Foundation, the UK charity responsible for finding and removing images of videos of child sexual abuse from the internet, has also seen a 77% increase in the amount of self-generated abuse material. And if you don't know what that is, we did a whole podcast with them, so get that into your ears now. And all of these crimes committed against women and children come against a backdrop of something I discussed last week when the BBC revealed the size of the backlog in the Crown Courts, which has now reached 54,000 unheard cases, which many experts believe may lead to some trials, especially rape and abuse cases, to collapse. And it's not just the physical and mental health of the nation that is in tatters, it's the financial health too. And if you're one of those people who finds it gauche to talk about money when people have died, I'm guessing you're not one of the more than 70,000 households who have been made homeless since the start of the pandemic, with tens of thousands more threatened with homelessness, despite government pledges to protect tenants and prevent evictions. That's according to figures compiled by The Observer in November, so God knows the size of that now. But what I can say is the Homeowners Alliance are predicting that more than 22,000 homes could be repossessed next year. That's more than 10 times the amount repossessed in the last full year before the pandemic. And so, what else is there to say, except that we're all scared of something? And if you've lost someone you love to COVID, you have my utmost sympathy. But there's no shame in that. And while there should be no shame in being the victim of abuse in the throes of addiction or a mental health crisis or facing the growing spectre of financial ruin, there still very much is. So if someone tells you they just want the world to go back to the way it was, maybe don't call them a covidiot. It's probably the only thing that you can do to help them. So let's give that a try, eh? Here, here. Wow. That was fucking bleak, mate. <laughs> Barrage of bullshit. Well, it's not bullshit. Sadly, I wish it was. I wish it was. Okay, well, I ain't going to cheer you up. What's in a name? Well, let's ask Britain's most senior police officer, Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cressida Dick, shall we? Dick, it seems, has taken the Margaret Thatcher approach of being a woman with enormous power. Don't upset the men by tackling huge societal problems that affect women. What am I wanging on about? Well, on the day that Wayne Cousins, one of Dick's officers, pleaded guilty to the kidnapping and rape of Sarah Everard, 
The 48-year-old also admitted responsibility for her killing, but has not yet entered a plea to the charge he murdered her. Dick admitted that there is the occasional, quote, Baden oh, within the ranks of the Metropolitan Police Service. Baden seems a bit dismissive, right? I mean, every so often you come across a ne'er-do-well, Mickey. That's all I can say. Well, yeah, and, and it's a comment that Dick made despite nearly 600 allegations of sexual misconduct in the Met Police. And moreover, it's an argument that fails to recognise violence against women is a structural problem, including within the police force. Since Sarah Everard's killing, 41 women have been killed in cases where a male suspect has been charged. That's according to Karen Ingala Smith's incredible project, Counting Dead Women. Ingala Smith told The Independent, So many people thought the disappearance and killing of Sarah Everard was a watershed moment. Even at the time, I didn't share that optimism. There is no evidence of any real will to tackle men's violence against women from the government. She added... If a woman is older, black and has a foreign sounding name and she is killed by a man who has been treating her badly for 40 years, her murder is accepted as normal. It is seen as inevitable, not newsworthy. As long as we think like that, it will continue to be normal and inevitable. That's the end of the quote from Karen Ingala-Smith, but I just like to say it does feel like the public and those employed by public bodies have become numb to male violence against women and girls. And Dick's crass closing of ranks does nothing to make women feel safer. Yeah, absolutely. Want a bit of good news, Mick? Get it in my ears immediately, please. Well, here's some from our friends at St John's College, Cambridge, where a new study has shown that women who will develop potentially life-threatening disorders during pregnancy can be identified early when hormone levels in the placenta are tested. Pregnancy disorders affect around 1 in 10 women. Complications can lead to difficult labours with more medical intervention and lifelong issues for the baby, including diabetes, heart issues and obesity. Pregnancy disorders are usually diagnosed during the second or third trimester of gestation when they have often already had a serious impact on the health of the mother and the baby. But scientists have found a way to test hormone levels in the placenta to predict which women will have serious pregnancy complications. Now, this is a serious breakthrough and perhaps beyond the amount of time and scientific knowledge I have to explain it. (laughs) But I will put a link in the podcast notes so you can read more if you want to. But big well done to that team at St John's College. Women's bodies need to be the subject of more important research like this. I'm doing a special, thank God someone's thinking of the women dance. <laughs> it looks a bit like that guy you saw shouting about the Euros. More news next week. <laughs> well, you have equal pay, but you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when what's bad for the world in general is, of course, worse for women and girls in particular. At Britain's G7 summit at the weekend, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson, man, that just never gets easier, does it? (laughs) Promised a global Britain and told G7 leaders he wants to create a more feminine world as the international community builds back from the Covid crisis. What does that mean? As ever, fuck really knows. Maybe he wants it to be pink. Who knows? But if he is referring to soft power, then the swinging cuts to UK spending on overseas aid need addressing, as cutting access to education for girls in countries which are already struggling is not the way forward. So the annual aid budget has been reduced from 0.7% to 0.5% of our national income, and opponents of the cuts are calling for them to be reversed. The impact of the cuts is actually quite hard to quantify at the moment because detailed information about specific cuts to funding hasn't been made available by the government. But some charities as well as UN agencies have already spoken out. And yet it is not looking great for women and girls. So the UN's family planning agency, UNFPA, looks set to lose some 85% of its funding from the UK. And that is a drop in real terms of about £130 million. According to the International Rescue Committee, the cuts will have an impact on education and nearly 11,000 girls in rural Pakistan may not attend school if the funding stops. Women for Women International Nigeria says the UK has terminated a three-year grant agreement that was halfway through implementation. Halfway through. I could go on. I'm not going to, because the point I'm getting at is this. 
Cuts to the foreign aid budget will impact most on the very poorest women and children and it has been shown time and time again that the way out of extreme poverty is education and reproductive rights for girls. Yeah, foreign aid is being hacked because of the cost of the pandemic here. And that is a pandemic that has already seen the equality of the sexes set back as women are most impacted by job loss and have borne even more of the brunt of unpaid care work. You've just heard Hannah's shit list of what is what here. Using it as an excuse to further impoverish women in any country is small-minded and far from global or feminine thinking. Hello, thanks to Women for Refugee Women, I am joined on the Zoom by Agnes Tano, a refugee now settled in the UK, and also Sam Hudson from Women for Refugee Women. Agnes, hello. Hello, how are you, Miki? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? Bless you, bless you. I'm okay. (laughs) Great. And Sam, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having us today. Oh, it's great. Thank you both so much for coming on. Agnes, I think a good place to start is if you tell us your story, if that's okay. How did you come to seek asylum in the UK? To cut it short, I came to seek asylum in the UK in April 2011. It was uh, a civil war in my country. And at that time... I was the personal assistant of the first lady of my country. I was arrested with them and the president of my country, but I was lucky. I escaped with the help of the United Nations Army. I couldn't stay there because many of my friends were arrested, put in prison, even killed. So Mm -hmm. I have to leave. Is why I left and uh, I reached uh, in England April 2011, as I said at the beginning. The UK Home Office has had a hostile environment policy for nine years now, since then Home Secretary Theresa May brought it in in 2012, and it has only got harder under Priti Patel. I mean, I don't even have the words, it's horrific. But can I ask, what was the asylum process like for you? Uh, first... I will say that is like the breakout of coronavirus. Okay. So I compare it because the asylum seekers are isolated. Yeah. They are destitute. They cannot work. So it's a bit like when coronavirus happened, you have to stay somewhere. You cannot meet your friend. And we all were depressed with uh, this coronavirus. And is how I see this uh, asylum seeking process for people who are not in detention, but for people who are in detention, is a prison, it's a nightmare. How someone can feel in the prison? What we feel when we are detained in prison as uh, asylum seekers. Yeah, and back in 2012, you were detained at Yarl's Wood for three months. Now, Yarl's Wood is notoriously, well, excuse my language, but fucking horrific. And like you say, it's not protection, it's prison. Can you tell us about your experience at Yarl's Wood, please? Uh, I'm always upset because I cannot heal from what I went through in Yarl's Wood. Yarl's Wood is a prison. For people like me, I was needed a sanctuary, somewhere that I can have peace. And they took me to prison. At that time, I have to report every week. I was living in Bolton, and I have to go to Manchester, uh, the reporting center, to report every week. And when I went to one day, I was arrested for what? I don't know. But they took me to the prison, Yes, what is, I don't know how far is it, because when you are in the van taking you there, you, you just ask yourself, where I'm going, what will happen to me? And sometimes it can take you a day, because you are not the only person that they collect at that day. They will take you from uh, one center, go to a, a police station, so you can be around all day knowing where you are going. This is the first thing. And when you reach at the big gate of that prison, you pass through many locked doors. 
say what I have done, my own blessing is that I'm claiming protection. Mm -hmm. And they take you through these many doors, then in a long corridor to uh, a, a room. You are in a prison. There is a certain time to wake up, a certain time to have a food, a certain time to go to bed, even you don't feel sleeping, and the, the guard can come in your room anytime and find uh, people naked because they have the double, the copy of the key. So they can enter in your room anytime. And for people who are not strong, is uh, a place for suicide. I with, witnessed a young girl from India. Uh, she was there because of uh, abuse, sexual abuse, and she tried to kill herself. So is I don't know, but it's a nightmare. I don't wish it to run off the women who are seeking protection. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And that it is something that the country just does as a norm now. People, women, asylum seekers are detained there. It's barbaric. And a lot of the women seeking asylum, like yourself, you, you've, you've escaped civil war and imprisonment. Women have survived rape, torture, trafficking. And a detention centre is not going to serve them well at all. You've no. mentioned the, the effect on that, that one woman's mental health. Could you tell us, if you don't mind, a little bit about the impact it had on your health and mental health? Yeah, I, I always say that it's a shame to cry uh, in front of people when I, I'm uh, trying to explain what I went through uh, because he broke me down. I still ask myself, why did they put me in prison? Because I kept on repeating the same story for seven years. I didn't add something. I didn't take something off. And after this uh, seven years, I got the right to stay here. So why did they put me in prison? Why did they put a prison people who need protection? So I have still this question in my heart and uh, I cannot forget uh, also what it was to to be in prison, uh, far from your family, uh, far from friends. How far is uh, um, this uh, prison of uh, Yaswood? I have two children here, but they couldn't visit me because even when they want to visit you, you have to fill up, I don't know, that is not a place for a human being mm -hmm. and human beings who are weak, human beings who need compassion, human beings who you need uh, support. It's not a place for women. And sometimes when I was there, they, they brought pregnant ladies. Yeah, yeah, I've read about that. Added vulnerability, just so vulnerable. I'm not healed. As I said at the beginning, Sam is trying to help me to find someone to listen to me. But I, I would like to to forget about all this. But for now, I'm still keeping this uh, stigma in my my head. And I don't want that happen to any women, to any women. I really appreciate you revisiting it for us. You're quite rare, actually, to talk to someone who has been inside Yarlswood because they do keep it pretty secretive. And it's clear why they do that, because they don't want this kind of stuff to get out. So your testimony, what you've been through and you telling us your experience is so valuable. So thank you. Nick, I will add that detention is not only harm vulnerable people, but it doesn't bring anything to this country. No, you're right. You're right. Nothing to this country. People who are coming here, some of them are skilled. They are skilled. They have something that they can give back to this country. I put them in the detention. I couldn't agree with you more. And Sam, as someone who works closely with refugee women, I'm assuming experiences like Agnes has just described are not a surprise to you. No, unfortunately not. So for many years, we've worked with women who are detained in Yarlswood. And as Agnes was explaining, the vast majority of these women have experienced things like rape, torture, trafficking and absolutely unimaginable violence and abuse. And then locking up these women in detention centres is just so re-traumatising and damaging to their mental health. 
Agnes has explained all that so well, but what I would also add is that it's completely pointless. The vast majority of these women have really strong claims for protection in the UK. They need to be granted safety. They need to have support so that they can rebuild their lives with dignity, with basic human dignity. The Home Office's own statistics shows that the vast majority of asylum-seeking women in detention end up being released. In fact, it's 86%. Wow. The Home Office is locking up these women for absolutely no reason. It's costing a huge amount of money. It's costing absolutely just massive human suffering and trauma. And there's far better ways. The Home Office does understand that detention is very traumatic and they had previously invested in alternative pilot projects which mean that women could be supported in the community rather than ever entering detention. There was a pilot project up in Newcastle very near to where the Home Office is planning to open a new detention centre and this project's been completely abandoned without looking at the results, without them looking at whether this would be a of the way to go in the future so we're incredibly concerned that there's now this kind of u-turn a change in direction to increase the detention of vulnerable women rather than to move away from it i'm going to get on to that new detention center and how you're fighting it in a moment but it's just bonkers isn't it because it feels like this very hard line this very hostile barbaric line is taken to calm down the right wing who claim that asylum seekers are coming over here and taking, taking, taking. And that has been disproven quite clearly so many times. So it's like this hard line exists to dispel something that isn't true anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, detention doesn't work point blank. It's costing a huge amount of money. It's re-traumatising people. It's not working for anyone. And it's really time for the government to think differently and think more humanely. I mean, obviously they're not, because as you mentioned, the Home Office has started building a new immigration detention centre at Hazockfield in County Durham. And you, Agnes, Sam, alongside many, many other people and listeners, there is a petition to sign, are fighting this decision. And Agnes, that is a fight that you took to Parliament. So could you tell me a little bit about how that is going and how can people help? I think that at this session with the MPs, it's my feeling that they were good listeners. Mm-hmm. So listen to us. Uh, I will say it. Uh, Sometimes I'm looking from my my words because my first language is French. Uh, but I think that they was really uh, attentive to what we were saying, mm-hmm. and this is a good sign. But for me, it doesn't just stop there. When you listen to someone who is in danger, what do you do? You can call 99 or 111. Uh, for us, we ask the MP to call the 111, who is pretty big tell, to say that the women are in danger. So don't, don't add more on their stress. Don't add more in their suffering. Don't add more in the struggle, putting them in the prison again is what I can ask them to do for us. I think I wish they will do it. And Sam, people can get involved. There is a petition that needs signing. It's already at nearly 14,000 signatures, but you need more. Where can people find out more about what's happening on this, please? We don't actually have much time to resist this detention centre. It's due to open in autumn this year and we'll have capacity to lock up 80 women at one time. The site is in the northeast of England, in County Durham. I would absolutely urge all of the listeners to take action. And as you were saying, a really simple way to begin is by signing the petition that Agnes has started. If you go to change.org and search Stop Detaining Women, it should come up straight away. Please, please, please share it with your friends, with your colleagues, with everyone you know because we really all need to come together and act now there's only a few months to stop it from opening and if it does open 
closing it down is going to be a lot more difficult. So now is the moment where we need everyone to take action and stand up for women who are seeking safety in this country. And as Agnes said, the MPs work for us. So if there's something important to you like this, then write to them. If enough people write to them on the same subject, they can't ignore it. They have to listen. They're there to listen. So yeah, get right into your MP as well, particularly if you live in the County Durham area, I imagine. Absolutely. We've got a really simple tool on our website as well, which makes it very easy for you to write to your MP. And there's a template letter there, which you can personalise www.refugeewomen.co.uk and you will find everything there. Brilliant. Agnes, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and thank you for being this pillar of power and love and compassion and wanting to fight for other women. Thank you, Miki, to have in us because it's full people like you that we can share our feeling and bring people to our concern and do something for us. You're so, so welcome. And Sam, lovely to talk to you again. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we slide across the turf in celebration as we discuss all things, hang on, men's sport. Well, yes, technically it is men's sport, but I am at least talking to a woman about it. So, you know, political correctness gone mad. Anyway, this week I'm chatting to BBC Sports pundit Shelley Kerr about the Euros, as you're about to hear. Shelley was in a train station and then on a train when I spoke to her, so we had all sorts of technical beef during this recording. So it's not that I didn't ask her about how England would fare in the Euros, it's just that it's almost impossible to decipher, and so I've had to cut it, unfortunately. Now, to be fair, we talk about England all the time, and there is more to life, the world, football, etc. So I'm actually okay with that, but I do appreciate that, contrary to popular belief, most of you are not board of experts, and some of you might want to know how she reckons England will fare. Well, she reckons they'll do all right, and that Gareth Southgate's squad is really very strong indeed. But does she think England will win? You'll have to keep listening if you want to know the answer to that. Since we recorded this, Wales drew 1-1 with Switzerland, Scotland lost 2-0 to the Czech Republic, and England beat Croatia. Yes, Croatia 1-0. But is that a good thing that we beat Croatia? Ooh. Again, you'll have to keep listening if you'd like to know. Perhaps why it's not a good thing. Well, I've got you, I should just mention, that Barbara Krechikova was the winner of this year's French Open in the singles and indeed the women's doubles. And that was alongside Czech compatriot Katerina Siniakova. She beat Russia's Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova in the singles. Not bad at all for a day, I guess a couple of days, well, a couple of weeks work. So well done to her. And that's more than enough of me gabbing on over to Shelley. I'm joined on Zoom by Shelley Kerr, former Scotland International and Scotland Women's Head Coach. Hi, Shelley. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. You are currently in a train station, so (laughs) we might hear the odd bit of background noise. You're very busy because you're getting ready to join the BBC Sport punditry team for the Euros, which are starting, well, by the time the listeners hear this, they will have already started. Shelley, as I said, former Scotland International and Scotland Women's Head Coach, no prizes for guessing who you're going to be supporting. So (laughs) let's start there. It's Scotland's first Euro since 1996 and Scotland are in Group D with England, Croatia and the Czech Republic. You're not going to be favourites to go through in the top first or second place, but you had a very good match last night at the time of speaking, that is, a 2-2 draw against Netherlands. How are you feeling about it all? As you mentioned, we haven't qualified, the men's team haven't qualified for such a long time. You know, it's going back previously, 1998 World Cup and, and then 96. So it's been such a long time. So there's a real ear of excitement around the country. And, you know, Scotland's obviously qualified through the Nations League. I think the manager, Steve Clark, has done a fantastic job to build the, the foundations within the team. So defensively, they're very good. And they're now added much more to their game. And 
you know, you mentioned the game last night against the Netherlands, um, a really credible kind of 2-2 draw and barring a decision right at the end, it, we could have won the game. It's brilliant for the country. And I think, you know, given the fact that it's been such a long time, that coupled with the fact that it's been such for us all over the last year and a half. So it's huge for us as a nation. There's no doubt about it. It's a tough, tough group for us. But I think the format of the tournament, you know, you've got the top two that go through and then you've got the four best third place teams. So I think we've got a really good chance. I think our first game is against Czech Republic. And I think, you know, if we can get a result in that first game, it would set us up really, really nicely. And we will definitely be the underdogs. That's what we always are as as a national team in Scotland. I'm going to come back to Group D in a minute. But on Scotland still, who are you most excited to see play for Scotland? In terms of personnel, I've been really impressed with Scott McTominay. Obviously, he's a, he's a player that everyone knows, especially down in England, playing for Manchester United. But he's actually been deployed in a back three for Scotland. But I think in the Euros, he'll probably go back into a more familiar kind of into the, the centre of the pitch. But we've got Andy Robertson, our captain as well, playing for Liverpool, Kieran Tierney, who I think has been one of our best players. I think, you know, everyone is talking about him being a future Arsenal captain, but we've got a real good, exciting group. John McGinn, obviously, at Aston Villa, and, and then we've got Billy Gilmer, you know, a young player that's been introduced into the squad as well, got his first cap last night for the seniors, so there's a lot of excitement there, and, you know, I think that, as I say, the, the foundations defensively have been built, but we've added to that now and got a little bit of excitement in the final third as well. So it's it's good. The squad has got depth in it, and, and we've got a bit of quality as well. And so, yeah, well, there's lots of excitement. Wales, if we stick with the home nations, but they've got an all right squad. Have they lucked out a bit in Group A, do you think? Turkey, Switzerland and Italy, or do you, or do you think that's a tough draw for them? I think it's a tough draw because Turkey are an up-and-coming team. Um, they recently they beat the Netherlands. They've got some good players. Italy, you know, are always in and around the top spots. So I think it will be tough for Wales as well. Listen, when you get to a finals tournament, you are always going to face tough opposition. That's for sure. The teams are so well regimented tactically. And um, so I think it will be tough for Wales. What about England in that case? There's a lot of discussion about Trent Alexander-Arnold who went off injured and off friendly against Austria. Anything could happen obviously between now at the time of recording this and and the start of the tournament but we've got a few notable players who might not be match fit. Jordan Henderson, Jack Grealish. How strong do you think the England squad looks at the moment? I think it is when you see the players that obviously were axed out the 33. It's really competitive, it's strong. I've been extremely impressed this season with Mason Mount, Declan Rice. So in Group D, if I were looking at Group D, then I would want to come second rather than first because of the way that the round of 16 works out. If you win the group, then you you end up playing against France or Germany most likely. And I personally would rather come second and, and avoid both of those teams at all costs. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many permutations and there's no doubt that, that Gareth will be going through them all. But I think the first thing is that they've got a really tough first game against Croatia and then a tough second game against Scotland. So it's, it is a cliche, but you've got to just take it one game at a time and get the points on the board to ensure that you qualify. I think if you're confident as a team, like, you know, for example, England should be, then it shouldn't matter, you know, what group you're and what team you're going to play against. I think the, the one thing is that the, the squad, um, England squad, has, has got so much depth in it. But, you know, Gareth might look at if you're in a scenario where you're already qualified in terms of, you know, selecting other players to give them some minutes because in a tournament, you need the full squad and you need to rest players accordingly as well. France are the current world champions. They won the last World Cup and they're also the favourites going into the tournament. Who's your money on? Or are there any sort of dark horses you think we should watch out for? Apart from Scotland, obviously. <laughs> You know, I've chopped and changed my mind. I do think England have got a really good squad. I think Belgium, I like the look of their squad as well. Quite exciting. The style of play is, is fantastic. But I think when you look at France's squad, it's got so much, so much quality in there. So, uh, you know, I probably would shade between Belgium and France. I don't think we'll see an upset in this tournament. I really don't because... I think you've got other factors as well. You've got, you know, what if anyone, you know, Scotland had a positive test and John Fleck, that could happen to any any team at any moment in time. And and therefore, you're looking at the the, the team and the nation that's got the most quality 
as a squad. So, i.e. in that 26 group of players. So, for me, I don't see there being a big upset in terms of who's going to win it. Okay, interesting, interesting. Do you think the last season would have had much of an impact on the players in terms of, because it's been an odd season, obviously it's been an odd year in general for everyone, but there have been lots of congested fixtures and, and no fans around and obviously fans are now starting to come back in. How much of an impact do you think that will make on the players? I think, certainly, if we look at the UK, for example, I think that obviously the EPL, they crammed in a lot of games and there wasn't a great turnaround in between the games. So in some ways, that might equip them better for going into the tournament because there's only four days between them and they've been used to that all season. And and if you're going to win a tournament, you need to be prepared physically and and mentally, of course, um, that's for sure. But I think the biggest thing for me is the fans because it's only laterally that, you know, there's been fans allowed in at the stadium. And that makes such a difference. I mean, even obviously the FA Cup had fans at it. You know, in Scotland, we, we, we haven't been used to that. But we're going to be fans at Hamden. So that will make a big difference to all of the teams, um, for sure. And it's it's something that hasn't been apparent throughout the pandemic until the last part of the season. Can you overplay the importance of fans? Or, you know, obviously you're a footballer yourself. No. It's it's like, you know, it's amazing how much extra it gives you as a player on that pitch. You know, when things are not going your way, the fans are, are you know, that sometimes can go on your back. So they give you that little bit of, you know, more enthusiasm to go and do better. They're on your case. We know fans, it's been it's been quite a tough watch at times. And it's the same, you know, if you're doing anything exciting and, you know, good phases of attacking play that the, the fans get right up for that it's mm. the game's all about the fans they are the lifeblood of football it's not been anywhere near the same without supporters it gives you that extra bit of energy when you're a player and so I, I, I think you know it'll definitely make a massive difference obviously Shelley you you are Scottish and and you know I, I'm English and there's obviously rivalry between the home nations teams and but in 2016 I was very quick to tell everyone about my Welsh granny and you know if <laughs> if, if England were to do badly I'm sure that my Scottish grandpa will will make his way into the conversation as well but I always like to see the home nations do well. How fierce is that rivalry for you? We be cheering England and Wales on too? I think if, if, if you'd asked me that question when I was young, I would have had a different answer. Now, you know, of course I'm passionate about my country, Scotland. I want them to do well because it's the first tournament we've been at, you know, in terms of men's team for a long, long time. But I like to see good football. I love teams that play football in the right way, that excite, that entertain, that you know, a lot of the, I think you'll see some games that tactically, you know, they try and nullify one another and it's a bit cat and mouse, it's a bit cagey, intense. I like games that are really, really open and, and that's what I'm hoping for in the tournament. So in answer to your question, of course there's rivalry. I want Scotland to do well, but I like all teams that play football in, in an entertaining way. So that's what I look at. Shelley, you're obviously a pundit on the BBC Sport team. When's your first match? Scotland's first game at Hamden and I'm delighted to be part of the BBC team and get to watch my country and play a major finals for the first time in over 20 years. Very, very exciting. Okay, Shelley, thank you so much for talking to me. No problem. You're very welcome. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film made me wonder... Does slapping a baby really make him or her free? Um, well, cripes. Um, <laughs> this week, we watched 1986's David Bowie Sausage Fest, Labyrinth, directed by he of Dark Crystal fame, Jim Henson, the puppeteer and cartoonist. I've written here cartoonish, which is something very different, but um, thanks for correct. And he was also previously responsible for The Muppets, Fraggle Rock, and an awful lot of the magnificent beasts you see in the original Star Wars trilogy. I can't believe that you didn't say the Muppets first, Jen. Oh, instead of Dark Crystal, yeah. because it's a film, I think. So okay. the Dark Crystal just fair enough. And the and the girl. As long as it is... wasn't a slight on the Muppets, because no we, man, we the, will da- have words. the Dark Crystal. I didn't watch that until I was at university, and the girlfling is is called Jen, and it's horribly frightening to be honest. <laughs> so you came first because it has scarred Jen for life. It really did. In fact, Labyrinth was also a Lucasfilm production with George Lucas serving as executive producer and it was based on the conceptual designs of fancy illustrator Brian Frowned. 
who also worked with Henson on The Dark Crystal, and the screenplay was written by Monty Python's Terry Jones, though various others, including Lucas himself, served as uncredited writers. So, a little bit of plot for you. The film tells the tale of 16-year-old Sarah, or Sarah, who hates her stepmom, Standard, and fucking loves a bit of LARPing in the park. That's live-action roleplay, for those who don't know. She spends her time hanging out with a dog called Merlin, digging mythical beasts and getting fucked off about having to look after her half-brother, baby Toby. One night after she's been left at home with Toby, who is throwing a right shit fit, she wishes the Goblin King would come and take him away. And the Goblin King, Jareth, played by David Bowie in some indecent leggings, happily obliges. But oh my word, she is going to be in for it when her parents get home, and Sarah sets about on a mission to rescue Toby after Jareth agrees to give her 13 hours to do so in his riddle-filled labyrinth world. On the way, she encounters treacherous worms, a little goblin man hoggle, a giant gruffalo cow beast called Ludo, a posh dog creature, and I mean that literally not in the like M&S sausages sense of posh dog, called Sididimus. Is he a fox? He's described as a terrier. He's a fox. Yeah. That Basil Brush thing. I mean, I assumed he was a fox because he reminds me of Basil Brush. You know, he does look foxy. (laughs) She's already blowing my mind with her new facts about Labyrinth. Also, some terrifying fireys playing football with their own eyes and heads, etc. And a bog of eternal stench. But can she rescue Toby in time? So... A few fun facts for you. Prince, Sting, Mick Jagger and Michael Jackson were all reportedly in contention for the role of Goblin King. And when Bowie was ultimately chosen, Terry Jones wrote in more screen time for him, thinking that this musical icon deserved a bit more time on screen rather than being met at the point at which Sarah reaches the Labyrinth Centre, which is what was originally planned for the plot. Another fun fact terrifying fireys they really are fucking terrifying or i thought they were (laughs) no they're kind of funny as well though i think they're sinister because they are kind of funny but also proper scary but fiery number three and number four are in fact voiced by danny john Mm -hmm. jules fact fans the film went on to become a cult classic and though it has an approval rate of 74 percent on rotten tomatoes which i think is decent not like mind-blowing but pretty good it's not fair so well at the box office in fact henson didn't live to see the film's success it was the last feature film he directed before his death in 1990 and according to his son labyrinth's failure to perform at the box office grossing just 12.7 million dollars from a 25 million dollar budget caused henson to sink into a state of depression which is Thanks. quite sad actually mm. One area in which the film was considered a success, perhaps unsurprisingly given Henson's pedigree, was the special effects. And in fact, the Goblin King's shitty owl form at the end is the first ever CGI animal. Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah. So, guys, I presume that you had both seen it before. In fact, Mickey, I know you have because you're a big fan. A gazillion and four times. Hannah? Yeah, I saw this... The first time when I was probably the age that Sarah is in this. I can't remember the first time I saw it. And that's I the, mean, only, I have that's seen the it. only time I've seen it before I saw it the other day. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, interesting. Interesting. I've definitely seen it a bunch of times, but I couldn't tell you when. I think I was quite a bit older when I first saw it. I just want to start with my main criticism of, of The Labyrinth. Sorry, Mick. I know, you know, I know you're a big fan, but uh, I, I do, I do have a few more having watched it again, but um, my main criticism of it is that Dance Magic Dance is a fucking absolute bona fide grade A banger and they spaff it way too early in the film. It's a bit like when Beyonce opens a set with Crazy in Love and you're like, that is a huge, huge act to follow. But, you know... Beyonce does always manage it. With this film, I'm not entirely sure. So, how do you want to do this? Mickey, do you want to start with a robust defence? Or or Hannah, do you want to tell us a bit about... Well, if Mickey's going to do a robust defence, I may as well get my thoughts in now. And I should probably say at the start, it's been nice working with you. (laughs) Um, I did promise a fight to the death, but... uh... I, th- I don't know. I think I'd fare better with Jen than with Hannah <laughs> when it came to a scrap. I didn't like Labyrinth the first time I saw it. And Is that because I... you're broken inside, Hannah? <laughs> I didn't like it the time I just watched it now. For variety, I didn't like it for a whole different set of reasons than I didn't like mm. it the first time. 
But yeah, the first time I saw it, I was at home while my parents went out on a Friday night and I was left at home looking after my brother. Too close to home. No, I just looked at it and I just don't understand Sarah. I can understand why you're annoyed that you don't get to go out on a Friday night. But she doesn't and, want to go out. And Well, she doesn't want to go out, but I, I get that. I get that it's annoying. You can be annoyed with your parents being left at home looking after siblings, but you just love your siblings. You never, you never, I, I never once thought, oh, fucking hell, I took it out on my brother because I've been left at home with him. So I just thought she was a whinging sport brat the first time that I watched it and I found her entirely unlikable. This time I've got some feelings about the Sarah's on the cusp of becoming a woman and how that's represented in her relationship with David Bowie. So uh, that's a whole other thing to discuss. So come forth with your robust defence. I mean, can I just say that I wrote down um, on that subject, Hannah, I wrote down they all want to bang her and it's wrong. Agree, and I need to be clear to say I fucking love the Muppets. My friend Paul Kirkley and I quite regularly row, and it's only ever about whether the Muppets are good or not, because I don't understand what's wrong with him, because he doesn't get the Muppets. I also love David Bowie, but together, it just doesn't work for me. It just, this film just does not work for me at all. Mickey, over to you. <laughs> the whole, I guess, David Bowie and 15-year-old girls thing is incredibly problematic, but I don't know, are we separating art from artist, I guess, for this? It's just the, the story's problematic, isn't it? Like, it's not, I don't think it's about separating art from artist. I don't think, I don't feel like David Bowie did something wrong. I, I feel like it's of its time, probably, but it just, yeah. I think in real life, David Bowie almost certainly did stuff wrong. And therefore watching him oh, okay. in that scene where he dances with her. I find Creepy it as fuck. uncomfortable as fuck. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. really, I didn't... really uncomfortable. That, that was that, that was my take on are we separating art from artists in this particular okay. instance? Bowie's one of those that it doesn't really get spoken about as much as it probably should. So my robust mm. defence of Labyrinth isn't necessarily very robust. I think a lot of it is massively nostalgia. I loved it. I loved the creatures. I found it a really good escape. To do with the storyline, I really enjoy the way it kind of is. Sarah needs to fucking grow up. She's so childish and she is still wanting to live in this very childish world where she doesn't want to take any responsibility, hence why she doesn't want to look after Toby. And it's not because she's got better things to do. It's just because she doesn't want to. She's a stroppy teenager. And there's that realisation of everything that she thinks she wants. You know, Jarrah says, I've given you everything. You wanted the baby taken away. I've given you that. You wanted to be frightened. I've made you cower before me. I will build the world for you. And she actually realises this world she's been fantasising about and imagining and thinking is where she wants to be. Isn't where she wants to be anymore. It's very Alice in Wonderland, very Wizard of Oz. Mm. I just enjoy that take on it. And I actually think, and I did do a bit on Standard Issue about how Labyrinth could beat the patriarchy. And that is that line that she says at the end that frees her from all of these childish trappings, frees her from Jareth, which is, you have no power over me. And it is all these things that she thinks she has to be in order to, she realises she doesn't anymore. And yeah, I enjoy that. I just think it's fun. And I like the songs. And I like the escapism. And I really like the Muppet-type creatures. Because I fucking love the Muppets. I can't quite get clear about how much I love the Muppets. The thing that I love about it is it's genuinely funny. And people have asked me to explain it to them and I'm like, you know, I know enough about comedy to be able to explain why Sarah's funny. You know, why like other people are funny. I can't explain why the Muppets are funny. I can't. And that's why it's fucking magic. The example I always use is that song You and I and George that Rolf sings on the piano. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me piss my pants every time I watch it. And I don't know. I don't even understand why it's funny. But it really, I mean, first really of all, they've is. got a dog playing the piano. That's just inherently <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Rolf reminds me. Rolf's humour always reminds me of Bill Bailey a little bit. It's that sort of thing. <laughs> but I don't think Labyrinth is funny. Therefore, it just feels like it's just loads of potential. Like, oh, my God, this is Henson. This is, this is Terry Jones and Henson. It should be fucking hilarious. And I don't think I laughed once. 
Yeah, I think maybe instead of the humour of the Muppets and Python, it's got more the oddness, the surrealism. Mm. Like the bit at the end in the what's basically an Escher engraving is, is incredible. That's a really cool idea. But yeah, I, yeah. I don't think it's a funny film. It's entertaining for me, personally, but I don't think it is a funny film at all, no. And I don't like the bit when they're at the masquerade and stuff. I never liked that, and I still don't like it. Yeah. And he looks like Wincy Willis. <laughs> Do you think Bowie looks like Wincy Willis? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's, he's clearly wearing a Tina Turner cast-off wig, surely. And probably <laughs> another one stuffed down his pants, because that is outrageous. I think, in general, kind of the portrayal of women is... Not great. I mean, there's only, like, really... There's only three, and um, obviously she is a bellend. I agree, Hannah. Um, and then her mum, her stepmom is sort of cast as this, like, you know, wicked stepmom. But she hasn't actually done anything wrong, I don't think. She doesn't even have a name. Yeah, no, she doesn't. Shall I tell you a funny story? About yeah, go that? on. Right, and this is why it was good for me to love my brother, because he grew up into a tremendous human being. So I told him yesterday that we watched Labyrinth and he told me this story about how, like, you know this, obviously. But for people listening, my brother runs a hotel. So he has to work with quite a lot of youngsters. And he's got a 14-year-old son, so he is quite up with popular culture as it is. Now you, again you, but maybe our listeners may or may not be aware that there is a rapper called Labyrinth. Yes, Right. My brother said he's, he's, he's at work with one of the youngsters that he works with. He says she's about 18, 19. And she said to him, do you like Labyrinth? And he said, <laughs> oh, yeah, I love Labyrinth. <laughs> but, and uh, she was like, really? Honestly, this is like that story in Bowfinger. We get that later. And he said, oh, God, uh, I love Labyrinth. And she was like, really? I'm really surprised. And he said, no, no, I'm a big fan. And she said, what's your favourite song? And he said... <laughs> probably dance magic dance and he said she just stared at him and went i don't know what the fuck you're talking about and walked away he said and he had to google it and then he was like fuck i'm never gonna try and be hit with the kids ever again that is an excellent story which could have only been made slightly better if if when she asked him what his favorite song was he'd just gone you remind me of the babe the babe the <laughs> he said i did a little sing and everything oh wow <laughs> i and it really it really reminded me of that scene in bowfinger where heather graham says to uh, steve martin do you like smashing pumpkins and he said are you kidding i love doing that <laughs> <laughs> i also have a little brother and labyrinth story it's not quite as funny but it just shows that it can go the other way when you nurture them and make them sort of more like you than they are your parents and so Aaron has got the same age gap as Hannah and Chris it's about 11 years is that right 10 11 years uh, 10 years yeah. between me and Chris yeah so yeah Aaron and I would watch Labyrinth together and he grew up absolutely loving it as well but what he did was when he got to university they developed it into a drinking game where you had to down your drink whenever there was a Bowie crotch shot so a very quick way to get drunk Oh, shit, yeah. Does anyone else have any salient points they want to make? Only that I think I should say that despite saying that I don't like it, I think Jennifer Connolly is perfectly adequate in it. That's no reflection on her performance particularly. I mean, considering that she's doing it all with puppets, which must be quite difficult for, you know, someone who's not that experienced in acting, I think she's fine. I think Bowie's super camp in it, which I think is what it's supposed to be. I'm slightly insulted at the idea that Bowie would have deserved more screen time than Prince, but, you know. Um, I'm just going to go away and think about what would have happened if Michael Jackson had got the role. Bloody hell. Fucking hell. Stay young, stay young. (laughs) Yeah, Mick Jagger, though, I was surprised that he was in the frame. That does seem a bit unlikely to me. Jagger's a terrible actor. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything. Well... Much like Roger Daltrey, stick to what you know, Mick. Um, <laughs> okay, thanks, Jen. Will do. Oh, other, yeah, okay. other Mick. Oh, yeah, sorry. Confusing. Jennifer Connolly got some quite bad reviews, actually, for that performance. Did yeah, you? people were quite unkind about her, which I think is, well, unkind, uh, given she's, you know, quite young. And I think you're right, Hannah. I think, you know, given that she's acting with puppets and whatever, that probably wasn't the easiest thing to do. So I'm going to ask the question, I think I know where we both probably... Well, you both, obviously I know where Dated. I... All right, Hannah, go on then. Just cut to the chase. <laughs> Mick? 
I I still rate it. I still have a great time and don't think it's as terrible as you. Bowie and 15-year-old girls, separate issue, notwithstanding. Can I just say, I didn't say terrible. I said I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like it. I didn't think it was good. I didn't think it was bad. I just didn't. It's not. It's not for me. Yeah, I think. I think it's. I think it's. It's nobody's song. Let's be clear about that. I think it is a bit dated, in terms of obviously the the things that we've discussed about. I, I don't think that shit would fly anymore. The fifteen year old girl situation. But yeah, I don't. I didn't hate it. I, I feel like quite ambivalent towards it, to be honest. There you go. The middle ground again. Neither rated nor dated. Who's up this next week? It's Mickey. Mickey, you have got a fucking treat for I've us got next week, haven't you? Absolute doozy for next week. We are going to watch the absolutely historically accurate Hannah. One for you, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. To the trees. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.